Welcome to the Endurance Horse Podcast, where endurance riders from all across the globe gather, sharing their stories, goals, and progress as they train for and compete in endurance events at every level. So kick off your shoes, pull up a chair, and listen as we gather around the virtual campfire and listen to friends from across the world. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Endurance Horse Podcast. It is hard to believe that we are in our fifth year of the podcast. Endurance Horse Podcast first aired in March of 2018. We have averaged a dozen episodes per year and have stayed free and commercial free for all of our listeners. And we are now approaching 50,000 downloads. It seems fitting that in our fifth year, we bring you five stories from the Tevis Cup 2022. This is the first of those five stories. In this episode, I get to chat with top international endurance rider, Heather Reynolds of Reynolds Racing. Heather is an international competitor and part of the dynamic duo that is Reynolds Racing. Both she and her husband, Jeremy, are well-known in the sport and have represented the USA at the highest levels of endurance. Heather has over 25,000 AERC miles, multiple Tevis Cup wins, eight Tevis completions, as well as having won the Hagen Cup in past years. Her list of accomplishments is long, though my favorite part of this conversation was hearing her talk about her horse, A Sudden Gift. You are invited to listen in while Heather and I chat about how she got into horses, endurance, and her 2022 Top 5 Tevis Cup placing. Without further ado, I welcome you to Episode 56 of Endurance Horse Podcast. So today on Endurance Horse Podcast, we're talking with Heather Reynolds of Reynolds Racing. And Heather, so these are a few questions that I ask everybody, no matter which episode we're doing an interview for. Um, And so the first question is, how did you get into horses? Well, no one in my family rides, really, except my sister now, Um, but none of my parents or anything like that. So we used to rent horses as much as we could afford, which was very rare when we were young. And then when I was 11 years old, Mary Ben Stover put an ad in, like, the Penny Saver little newspaper in our town to feed horses in exchange for riding. And my parents answered the ad for me because I was 11. And mm. I couldn't even feed the horses when she wanted them fed because I was in school. <laughs> but she just had a soft spot for juniors, and she ended up in the Hall of Fame for all of the mentoring of juniors that she did over the years. So that's how I got into it, and I just happened to luck upon her and her endurance horses and yeah being in the right place at the right time so I think that's the first time that I have had somebody answer my second question without having to ask it which was how did you find endurance but you already answered that so (laughs) (laughs) so what made you stick with endurance I you have traveled all over the world with endurance and so what is it about it that really um, makes it click with you I think it's just really fun because every time that you do a ride, whether you're on the same horse or a new horse, it's a completely different challenge. Because the trail is so long and the miles are so great, you're going to be presented with some challenges every time. Mm -hmm. And it's never the same ride twice. Even if you ride the same horse at the same race every year, it's not going to be the same every year. So that's the challenge of it, and that's the fun of it. And Jeremy and I always, after every single race, we'll go over the pros and cons of what went well, what did not do well. Uh, for that event with that horse and try to strengthen it each time. So that's fun to just 
try to keep dialing it in more and more. So what was it that piqued your interest in 100-mile distance? I imagine you didn't, maybe you, did you, did you start out at 100 miles or where did you start out? No, I started out with 50s and one of Mary Ben's best friends was Becky Hart. And when I was young, that was like the person to be, right? Like she right. was winning gold medals and, and winning world championships. And the championship distance was always 100 miles. So then that just intrigued me. You know, as an 11 year old, like, I have to get there. I have to do that. You were really, you really got blessed with who you met right away, did you? That's amazing. Yes. yes. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the horse, uh, Sudden Gift, and what job did he have before becoming an endurance mount, or was that always his job? Um, he was on the racetrack originally, um, and he's kind of a smaller horse. He's not quite 14-3. And I actually met Sudden well before I bought him without knowing that I'd met him, which was kind of funny. I had flown out to California to look at some horses on the racetrack, um, and at the time we had a height minimum just because if we they didn't work out for us, they were easier to sell if they were a little taller. So we had the height minimum of 15.2. We weren't, we were not buying lower than 15.2. Is that what, that's what we could resell. And so I went to this guy's, uh, you know, row, shed row at this track and he, I went there for a specific mare and I just decided to look at everything else he had. And Sun was one of the horses in the row. And I'm like, I really like this horse. You know, he goes, Oh, he's much smaller than what you wanted. And I never caught his name. I just looked in the stall and went, I really like this horse. So that was it. You didn't, I didn't have him bring him out of the stall or anything else because I didn't want to get tempted with horses that weren't what we're looking for. Right. So then fast forward six months later, and here's a picture of this gray horse on Facebook. Hmm. You know, I still didn't really know his name, so I didn't know it was the same horse. And he was advertised as being bigger than what he was. Um, so I bought him sight unseen. So I just loved the way it was put together. And he shows up, and I go, wow, you're much smaller. And then I looked again, I'm like, and I know you. <laughs> kind of hilarious. And yeah. then I just have had him ever since. And I got him in 2014. He's not going anywhere. He's, I've been riding him for nine years now. Um, but he's just fantastic. And if you told him he was 14-3, he'd call you a big fat liar. <laughs> like, he is the biggest horse. He is the biggest horse in our barn, mm-hmm. um, if you ask him. Um, and he's just a neat guy. And I asked the breeder how he got his name. Because I'm like, well, that's kind of a strange name. Um, and his dad's name was Sudden Mischief. So they put Sudden in there. But what happened was his dam belonged to Mandolin Hill Farm in Texas, a racing farm. And she was on a breeding lease, and whoever had her had to return her while she was still in full. They didn't, like, carry out the lease for whatever reason. I don't I didn't get that part of the story. So then Michelle Morgan at Mandolin Hill all of a sudden has this pregnant mare returned to her that's about to foal. Oh, wow. And so he got the name A Sudden Gift. Hmm. So that's, that's how cool. that came about. That's a sco- Yeah. That's such a cool story. So you have over 25,000 AERC miles, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have you now have eight Tevis completions. Uh-huh. Um, That's correct. Multiple wins as well as Hagen Cup. And so I was wondering, what is the biggest thing that you've learned in your riding career? Because you've had quite an extensive career, especially starting at 11. Yeah, the biggest thing is no matter what your plan is, the horse might have other plans. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to, That's a fact. You have to roll with that every time. Yeah. So I had other plans for Tevis this year and then Sutton told me that was a bad idea. So, Okay. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it was pretty funny at Francis. He was having some lameness issues uh, during the day, starting at Michigan Bluff. And I did not know that because he felt perfect on trail. But when I stopped at Michigan Bluff for the five minutes to cool him that I had planned on stopping, when I went to trot him again, he was lame. So mm-hmm. trotting through town, I was like, oh, crap. Like, what? what is this? Um, and he was lame uh, about, I don't know, halfway through town. And then he was fine. 
Hmm. But, well, shoot, that's scary. Um, and he did have a really bad trip after Granite Chief where the dust, I was in a train of eight horses, and the dust was about, you know, waist high on me, so he couldn't wow. see the ground. And he tripped really badly. And after he tripped, I realized what it was because I remember seeing it when there wasn't dust. And it's one of those water bars where it was like granite rock, a big, like, square trench, and a granite rock. So normally you just step across this thing. But because it was so dusty, we couldn't see it, and he really clobbered in there. He didn't get any cuts or anything. So I don't know if it was that. I don't know, you know, if it was just because we've gone so far. I don't know what the deal is. But he's never had that where he's lame, and then a minute or two later he's perfectly sound. So, I'm like, that's weird. And so when I got the chicken hawk, I asked my crew, can you look in his pad? So we sliced a center line through his pad so that we could pick it out and look in there and not get anything jammed up. So he looked, he finds a tiny little stone. Like, I don't think that's what was causing it, but okay. He looked fine at that check. Went into Forest Hill, great at that check. Leaving Forest Hill, he was lame about a quarter of the way through town. I thought, should I go back? Like, what's mm. going on with you? And then he was fine, perfectly fine. Goes into Francisco's, is starving, goes to eating. I cool him out. I go to trot him. Um, and they say, we, you know, we think we see something. We're going to do all the metabolics. Yes, trot again. And the second trot, they all went, well, he looks perfect. Like, well, shoot. So at that point, I decided, and I was still with Christoph and Gabrielle at that point. At that point, I decided that the hot and heavy pace man was probably not a great idea with what, because I didn't know what was mm-hmm. wrong with him. And so other than his energy was fantastic, but I just didn't want to take a chance with the mystery of whatever that was. And I'm glad I didn't, because then when I went into the quarry, it was perfect, but I cooled him and vetted him immediately and then fed him in case he did that again, you know, mm-hmm. got stiff or whatever it was doing. And he didn't feel stiff. It felt like, I didn't even know what, like, he's lame and then he's not lame. I didn't feel like he needed to warm up. It was like, he's lame and then he's suddenly sound. And he's mm-hmm. not had any arthritic problems. I can't imagine that all of a sudden on Tevis Day, he's got arthritis suddenly. Right. And it was like, you know, so I really don't know. But when I left the quarry, he was lame again for maybe the first minute that I was on his back. And, I, and he was the lamest he had been after all these little episodes. And I went, oh, my gosh. No, like we got to go back. And then, uh, and then I was like, well, maybe... Maybe if you canter, you know, a little bit on this flat. And he was like, oh, canter. And it was like, go, go, go. Like, oh, no, no, trot, 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 please trot. It's like, oh, mistake. Mm-hmm. And then he was pretty sore for maybe two more steps, and then he was perfect. Huh. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to trot in and hope for the best. So I trot in, and he felt golden. And when I got to the bridge, my crew was there like, do you need anything? I said, I need to keep moving. He's not very sound, just so that at the finish, if you're prepared and keep to work on him or stretch him. Or, I didn't even know, you know. Mm-hmm. So then I got into the finish. Uh, walked him immediately down there, got on, and I'm like, moment of truth, are you sound for your victory lap? And he trotted around perfect. I'm like, okay. So we, and I came in easy to the finish line, hoping to just have the heart rate, you know, just so we could just go right through and be done with this thing. Hmm. And so, yeah, it was perfect. His final trot out, he looked great. And then I'm like, well, okay, that's a blessing. We got through this thing because I had done Tevis on him before and we've been pulled at the finish line. Oh, no. Um, he, he came in fifth uh, in 2019. I don't know, that was his first 100 ever. Came in fifth got pulled the finish line so it was like i'm not having that happen again it was a different reason that time but won't get into that so Mm. anyhow he finishes and then i'm thinking well i might not be able to show him for bc but at least he finished the ride Mm -hmm. and the next day looks fantastic i mean he was just he cantered during his bc trot out (laughs) a couple strides on his final circle i'm like hey buddy we're not supposed to be doing that (laughs) glad he's feeling good yeah and he's and his legs nothing filled Nothing swells. I was like, well, shoot, I really don't know what that was all about. He did get um, a flare-up of scratches uh, oh. Sunday evening. 
So I don't know. I mean, it could have been something that subtle, but I don't know. We were putting cream on there as a preventative, but it did flare up. So I really don't know the answer, but nothing swelled and you sound and I'm happy. So Heather, you've ridden all over the world. You've represented the United States many times at the top level of the sport, but yet you still say that Tevis is your favorite ride. Can you tell me why? And can you tell me what is your favorite part of the trail? I think Tevis is my favorite ride because it's, it's so different every year. Like uh, the different challenges that you're thrown each year just change so it's like a constant evolving puzzle for lack of a better way to describe it and there's just something so beautiful and breathtaking about the scenery there so that's something also that's just incredible and i don't know this year my favorite part was probably going through the granite chief wilderness area because there was just a stunning amount of flowers which isn't Mm. typical and there was just pinks and purples and yellows and then you're on this if you haven't done granite chief wilderness area for anyone listening to this you're kind of on a plateau that's a side hill drifting to the left. And then if you look out to your left, it's just a stunning panoramic drop of, and you're not on the edge, that's so not scary, but a big bowl view of these above the tree line, craggy mountaintops, just as far as I can see. You see nothing about civilization. And that's just absolutely stunning to me. Sounds gorgeous. I saw some pictures and, and videos um, of you from a past ride. I think it might have been the 18 Tevis. But um, I noticed that your horses are very well muscled through their top line, and they seem to carry themselves in a really balanced manner. And that's not always mm-hmm. the case with an endurance horse. A lot of times you see horses very inverted. Um, so I was wondering, mm-hmm. what do you do for cross-training to help develop this top line in your horse? Yeah, so we live half the year in Florida, half the year in California. So when we're in Florida, we have a lot of really deep sand, which is really difficult for the horses. So they get cross-trained that way. But as far as their back carriage, um, it's important to us that they travel in a correct frame. But it's a loose frame. So it's not – a lot of people, when we say that, will think more of a, an over-engaged or really round frame. And for us, we found that to be too tedious for the horse to still get the length of stride. Mm-hmm. If they're super round, like a dressage, proper dressage movement would be. Mm-hmm. So we want them to carry kind of in a neutral position, like how they'd be out in the field. So we spend a lot of time getting their head carriage correct, especially in their first season. So we do a lot of schooling, but we always do our schooling on trail, which sounds kind of funny. But um, in Florida, we have these zigzaggy trails. So you do a lot of leg yield. You do a lot of flying leap change, and you can get their head where you want it to be. And then we also believe in only telling the horse when you need to tell them something rather mm-hmm. than constantly harping at them while you're riding. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of context. So they learn to carry themselves in a very natural frame. So they end up with a really nice head carriage on a loose rein, mm-hmm. which is our goal. We want to be able to ride the buckle, loose frame, walk truck canter in a group of 40 if you had to be, and have the horse just look the same the whole time. And then we find that the horse is more relaxed. He could travel within himself and not have any weird pressure points from the rider, you know, demanding weird postures from them or just asking for too much collection and they can't extend it's a lot of work for the horse to have to have extreme collection while doing this kind of job but you're you're on purpose and you're aware of teaching them to work from the hind end that first year so that they do develop over their top line and carry themselves correctly um, I, I can see yes. it i can see a difference you know that that the whole neck the whole the loins everything just is filled out the hindquarters is really filled out differently than many horses that I've seen, so I just was really curious about that. But yeah, leg yielding. Well, and, thank you for noticing. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it, uh, it is a lot of work. But like you said, you put that yeah. 
you put that foundation down first. So then mm-hmm. I will include a link in the show notes to your website, but you also do race training and you do coaching and you train horses and condition them. Is that right? Yes, that is right. And we're getting away from, it's like an ever-changing business model, right? Uh, we're getting to the age where we don't want to start green or problematic horses because we commonly get sent those as well. But yeah, so now we're just more in the frame of conditioning. And we've actually started offering a new thing where it's more like a concierge program where you send the horse and you can just arrive, do the ride on a very, very well-prepared, you know, trained horse, have a nice time, have crew. It's all arranged. Just show up, do the ride. So it's more relaxing for people that have a full-time job. They're mm-hmm. trying to, you know, compete at a high level, but it just doesn't pan out for them because... They can't do, you know, they can't be in two places at one time. Yeah, I understand that, not starting greenies or anything. I mean, you have to put a value on your your body, <laughs> you know, yeah, to, exactly. to be safe. And um, that's completely understandable. But, you know, there's people that specialize in just that, you know. That just... Exactly. And we, we also found the time frame, it makes it odd for us because when we do have a lot of green horses, but then we also have a lot of horses that are training for something like Tevis. It's hard to pair them up for workouts, and Jeremy and I always ride together. And so it gets to the point where it's just a wonky combo of, like, this one needs to learn how to, you know, walk under saddle, and this one needs to learn how to fly through the Tevis. So it's easier for us if more or less the whole group is on the same page as far as they're all well broke. They can do, you know, different levels of training. It's a little easier on pairing up. Sounds like a good evolution in the training plan, I think. Yeah. I was just wondering... If you do anything specific or just the riding keeps you fit, but this, you know, endurance, 100 miles, Tevis, that's an extreme sport. Could you just tell us a little yeah, bit? So, yeah, so Jeremy and I meet with a bunch of friends, and we do this big training hill uh, in Auburn when we're preparing for Tevis, like for the three months leading into it. And we'll stay fit, you know, throughout the year, but we specifically do this for Tevis. And it's a really steep, like really steep, stupid uphill and then uh, like a three-and-a-half-mile easy downhill to come back around, so it's a loop. Mm-hmm. And so I will power hike up. Jeremy's crazy, so he'll run the whole thing. <laughs> but we'll power hike up, and then we'll do an easy jog down just to get that concussion on the front of our own legs because mm-hmm. I, excuse me, so I will jog down all the canyons at Tevis just to help my horse, mm-hmm. and that adds up to about seven miles. Wow. Um, but if you, don't, if you don't do that downhill impact on yourself, and I'm not talking about running. Don't run down these hills because you want to overstride and injure yourself. But just the impact, you could jog down an impact on the front of your leg, the quad and the shin is what you're trying to build up. Because all, between, I found with Tevis, I get so sore in the front of my leg, and I'm sure a lot of riders that finish the ride on Saturday can agree with this feeling. But you get to the point where you can't walk down a slight incline or down a step, you know, or bend down because the front of your leg is so trashed even if you never got off because of all the amount of downhill riding you're doing, which is not common. So I, this wasn't a question I had listed, but you mentioned the importance of stride length. And um, mm-hmm. so I've heard that from runners also, for distance runners, that to, to not have, how do I frame this correctly? A lot of people see a huge trot on a horse and they think, oh, I want to I get that horse for endurance. And, and maybe that's true. Um, you can correct me on that. But I have heard from dressage trainers and from runners that the longer the stride you're taking, the more prone to injury you are. So do you think that holds true for horses also? It definitely does. But with that said, some horses have better biomechanics that they could take a longer stride without injury. Mm-hmm. And so it depends on each horse individually. But each horse, you can get to the point where you're overstriding. 
So you have to know where that point is on the horse that, you know, you're addressing at the moment. Um, Sudden has, the way his shoulder angle is, he can do a pretty big trot without overstriding. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just depends on the horse. But basically, I tell people, when you look down and when you're riding the horse, if you look down, you can see the horse's leg, you're overstriding. Yeah. You should not be able to see their leg while they're trotting. So if you're seeing that big forearm and, and the horse, and also they get a feeling where it's um, a really thrusty, wonky trot. Yeah. We're all of a sudden like, whoa, whoa, you know, like wobbly whoop and they're flying along. That's too fast. Yeah. So whatever that is. And for some horses, that could be nine miles an hour. For different horses, it might be 12 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So there's no set speed per se. It's more individually based. But yes, there's absolutely an overstride on every horse. And you want to stay beneath that so that you can reduce your soft tissue injuries. Yes, yeah, so I kind of cringe when people go, oh, my horse can trot 18 miles an hour. It's like, oh, I bet he can't. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but it was the old style mentality. I used to say it. Mm-hmm. That was how I was raised. Like, the bigger the trot, the better. And, you know, over time, we've just learned that's just simply not probably the best idea. Um, so, you know, and, and I also find it very common when we receive horses to train um, that a lot of endurance horses don't actually know how to maintain a canner properly. Mm-hmm. So they end up, they hand gallop or they accelerate until you tell them to slow down. Then they accelerate until you tell them to slow down. So they don't just, canner isn't really a gate. It's just an acceleration. And so it's, it's really important, too, to teach the endurance horse to actually canter on both leads. And if you can't do a flying change, that's fine. Stop to trot, simple change, back into the canter. But they should know how to canter on a loose rein and carrying themselves without leaning on you. Uh, and that goes a long way towards the soundness. Does that go back to teaching them to use their hindquarters first? Because you do see that if a horse is, is going that wonky that sometimes their top line gets just almost atrophied looking or hard looking um, mm-hmm. if they're not taught to go over the top line correctly? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think when we used to live in California, I think another problem that a lot of riders probably encounter is when you're in very mountainous terrain, it is difficult to first teach the horse to canter and maintain canter because what ends up happening is the horse accelerates the top of the hill, trots down the other side, accelerates mm-hmm. the top of the hill, trots down the other side. So they don't mm-hmm. get to maintain very well unless you have a long enough hill that you can teach them like, no, we're actually going to hold this speed here. We're not just going to keep accelerating. So it can get a little tricky. And also people, I think, want to train on too steep of a hill. So it's better if you have a more gradual hill, if you only have hills, to, you know, to offer the horse. But I think that's another problem that gets encountered that does make it more difficult to get maintenance of gait and their learning. How is it when you're, you're training a horse that has been at the racetrack, do they tend to want to accelerate or do you feel like they already kind of have that idea of pace? It, dep- it depends on the horse. So what we found in our experience, we've dealt with a lot of horse off the track. It's kind of funny, but the ones that never really got to win, they're a little more frantic about rating. Hmm. And I don't know if that's their desperate attempt to prove to you that they can win. I don't know. But the ones that were winning and like winning big races, they're more agreeable just as a stereotypical average. I'm not saying they all are like that, but just as a lump average, if you took a hundred of them, you're the ones that won and did well, they seem almost more relaxed within themselves, more confident. Like I just maintain canner. It doesn't matter that everyone's ahead of me because I can just blow by them whenever mm-hmm. I want. Or the one that was kind of like, I'm trying still put me in coach. They're mm-hmm. a little harder to mm-hmm. get to rate. And I don't know if that's just them like trying their heart out or what. Um, but that seems to be the case, but they do transition quite well. And we tend to try to teach our horses in Florida when we're there to train, like to can on a group of six on a loose rein and maintain, you know, the speed that we want without accelerating where you don't even have to pick up the reins. So it's just like any endurance horse trotting down the trail where they'll just maintain trot. These guys will maintain canter. And it's just a nice 
tool to have. So if somebody's listening right now and they think, wow, I just don't think I can do that. Like every time my horse breaks into canter, they accelerate. So could you give them a quick tip on how could they start to train their horse to not just keep going faster to rate themselves? I mean, it depends individually on what's yeah. going on with the horse. I mean, in general, we get it quicker on a flatter terrain. So mm-hmm. If you have a flatter terrain available to you, it's easier because then they have less variables of them trying to accelerate up the hill and go down the other side of rate. They see the top, like, we should race to the top, which a lot of riders do that, too. Oh, we're going to let them gain momentum. It's like, yeah, that's not how that works. So you try running up the hill. <laughs> if you gain momentum as you reach the top, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the flatter the terrain, though, it's easier in the beginning to teach the horse. And also, I think it's easier when they're younger and maybe not as coordinated or balanced or developed to do it in straight lines rather than in an arena. Because mm-hmm. then they have things, you know, more variables. Like, i got to make the turn. I have to balance. I have to not tip over. I have this rider on my back. So it's easier, I find, to teach them in a straight line, out on a trail, you know, with good footing where you can maintain where it's possible to canter for several miles, you know. And you're not going to do that at first when they're learning, but at least it's an uninterrupted thing where they could just concentrate on themselves and not all these other factors. So this year at Tevis, it was, it was over 100 degrees, wasn't it? It was like 120 or something. It was, it I don't pretty... think it was that hot, but it was, it was hot, but I don't think it was that hot. I thought I read somewhere. It was, definitely it, was... Over, it was definitely over 100. Someone did post that, and I don't know if that was accurate or not. But it was mm. definitely, I would be willing to say 103, 105, something okay. like that. Hot, definitely hot. What extra special steps do you do to take care of yourself as a rider so you don't run low on electrolytes or hydration? And then what steps do you do? for your horse when it's in that that hot of an environment? Um, I, we do our normal electrolyte protocol. And luckily, our horses, when they're in Florida, it's crazy hot and humid in addition to that, and there's no humidity here. So <laughs> the horses kind of think it's nicer here, actually. <laughs> for myself, I'll eat um, salty foods. I'll take the Keto 1000 powdered electrolytes and water. Um, I like that brand. I'll drink pickle juice, which I... is really good. Yep, I've heard that. Um, yeah, and then V8, like the original, not the low-sodium one. V8 mm-hmm. is really salty. Yeah, not that I do. What advice could you give to these riders on how do they move up from, let's say, a 50 to a 75 or a 100? I mean, it would just be, if your horse can do a 50 and he cannot be at cutoff time, you know, he could be somewhere in the middle of the pack there, and he doesn't look exhausted, you can do a 75. So that could be your rule of thumb. And I wouldn't particularly change your training pattern if you did well at your 50 and the horse looked fine and passable and could easily go on. He wasn't like haggard and went, oh, we barely made it. You know, make it with ease. He's got, he's got a good look in his eyes, trotting out comfortably. And you didn't take the full 12 hours. Maybe you took nine hours. You could do it. And you could just simply move on. And you would just think of it loop by loop. Don't think of it as doing a 75 or 100. Think of it, okay, my next section 15 miles. Okay, my next section 20 miles. My next section whatever it is. And that's easier to take it in little bites like that. And just get yourself pumped up for just the next section. So I was wondering, Heather, what's next for you? What's your next event coming up? Um, we are doing the Tahoe Rim Ride in two weeks, which will be fun. And beautiful. And then we're probably doing the Virginia City. Yeah, very pretty. Virginia City 100. And then we're going to take Treasured Moments. We're hoping to take Treasured Moments back to Italy for the mm-hmm. World Championship in October. Fabulous. One question uh, before we say goodbye And that is, for the listeners, what is your top conditioning piece of advice that you could impart to them? Just be very consistent. There are no shortcuts. So when I'm coaching people, they're kind of hoping that I'm going to tell them some magic trick, but there are no shortcuts. So it's just a lot of hard work and being able to adapt. So if you, you know, just like you having bad days, the horse can have bad days too. So even if you have a training plan, you're being super consistent, don't become like a training Nazi either. If your horse Mm -hmm. says, this isn't the day, then don't 
go very far that day. Maybe I had a 15-mile plan, but the horse says, you know, five miles is all I want to do today because I'm just not right today. Just listen to them, but definitely be consistent. Well, Heather, thank you for sharing your time, your wisdom, your experience with the Listeners of Endurance Horse podcast, and we wish you the best at your Tahoe Rim and Italy. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. We enjoyed having you along for the ride. Endurance Horse Podcast is where you get to share your adventures of riding good horses through beautiful country. Many stresses in life are washed away by a good gallop, a steady trot, or by simply saddling up your favourite horse for an easy ride. Remember, every mile a memory.